This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the AM Basic Podcast. Today we'll be doing a topic podcast on allergic reactions and anaphylaxis. The patients we see with this disease process can have very mild symptoms, all the way up to a critically ill patient who is rapidly losing their airway. We'll talk about the diagnosis and workup of allergic reactions and anaphylaxis and how we can intervene quickly. This podcast will be split into two parts. When I started writing the script for this podcast, I realized that there was a lot of talk regarding the airway issues with anaphylaxis and upper airway obstruction in general. So the first part will talk about anaphylaxis and its treatment. In the second part, I'll focus on the airway issues with anaphylaxis. So let's get started with part one, anaphylaxis, diagnosis, and treatment. As always, this podcast doesn't represent the views or opinions of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or the Fort Hood Post Command. The first thing we need to do in every patient who is having symptoms of an allergic reaction is to make a rapid assessment of their airway, breathing, and circulation. If the patient is having a mild cutaneous reaction and is sitting up talking to you without any problems, then you can take your time and get a full history. However, if you walk into the room and you see the patient is having respiratory difficulty or has strider, you need to act very quickly to get the patient epinephrine and ensure a patent airway. We'll talk about the stable patient first, followed by the critically ill patient so we can get the basics down. I know that I say this every episode, but it's always important to look at the vital signs and the triage note. Any abnormalities in the blood pressure or pulse ox should make you suspicious that there could be airway involvement. Take a look to see if the patient's medication list includes an EpiPen, which could tip you off to a history of anaphylaxis. When you enter the patient's room, you'll need to rapidly assess the patient's overall status. In the episode on febrile infants, we talked about the pediatric assessment triangle, but I think it works for adults as well. The mnemonic is ABC, so we know this well, but it stands for something slightly different. ABC stands for appearance, work of breathing, and color. Appearance is where you ask a very simple question. Does this patient look sick or not? Work of breathing is exactly that. How hard is the patient working to breathe? Finally, color. Is the patient flushed and red, or even more worrisome, gray and cyanotic? This is probably an assessment that we all make walking into the room of every patient, but the assessment triangle gives a structure to that unspoken assessment if you need one. So let's say that you have a patient that passes the eyeball test from the foot of the bed. The next step will be to go to get a good history and physical. You'll want to ask exactly what the patient was doing when the symptoms started. You'll often find that patients seem to be eating when they have these reactions, so you should ask about any exposure to nuts, seafood, or any other unusual food. Don't discount the possibility of an allergic reaction or an anaphylaxis if the patient has had that particular food before without any problems. Patients can go through a large portion of their life eating everything until one day something sensitizes them to a particular food or allergen. That being said, I find that it is rare that patients can identify exactly what they were exposed to that caused their symptoms, especially when it comes to mild, cutaneous allergic reactions. For our purposes in the ED, it doesn't really matter, but it's helpful to the patient if you can do some detective work to figure it out so they can avoid that allergen in the future. Next, you'll want to ask what symptoms the patient is having, focusing most on the skin and respiratory tract. Ask the patient if they're having any trouble breathing. I have found that most patients with even mild allergic reactions will say that they feel tightness in their throat. Obviously, you'll need to assess their airway and lung sounds, 
but a sensation of tightness doesn't necessarily mean impending airway collapse. So ask about or observe the patient is having a noisy breathing or strider. Strider is this unmistakable airway noise that you'll never forget after hearing it once. I'll post a YouTube video on eambasa.org so you can hear it. If the patient has strider in the setting of an allergic reaction, you need to act quickly. We'll talk more about this later. Now ask about any skin symptoms. Does the patient have any rash, itching, or swelling? Ask the patient if their voice is normal for them. If you are unsure, ask the patient to vocalize a high-pitched E, like this. E. If that sounds normal, then edema in the oropharynx is unlikely. Sometimes it can be difficult, if you just met the patient for the first time, to know whether they are swollen around their lips, face, or hands, so ask them if they notice whether any part of their body is swollen. Before you move on, ask the patient about any gastrointestinal symptoms. This is an often overlooked part of the history, but it is very important to ask about. Persistent abdominal pain and GI upset in the setting of an allergic reaction is actually a diagnostic criteria for anaphylaxis. These patients may be well up hearing, but they won't get better unless they get epinephrine, and if the current episode of anaphylaxis is not recognized, the patient could have a fatal episode of anaphylaxis the next time. We'll talk more about the diagnostic criteria for anaphylaxis later, but I just wanted to mention that because I have to remind myself to ask those questions every time. Finally, as in all patients, get a good medication list, past medical and surgical history, and known allergies. Ask the patient if they've ever had these symptoms before and pay special attention to their medication list and ask if they've started a new medication or recently changed the dose on any of their medications. Now let's talk about the physical exam. I know I always stress the head-to-toe exam, but in this case, you'll want to jump right away to the airway and lung exam. You'll want to assess the airway in every patient with allergic reaction symptoms. Examine the lips and face for swelling. Have the patient open their mouth and see how far they can open. Check for any edema in the airway and assess the patient's mild potty score. While mild potty scores can't accurately tell you who will have a difficult airway, they force you to look all the way in the back of the throat for any swelling. Follow this by looking for any other difficult airway predictors. If you need to review these, go back to the airway episode. Remember that if the patient can vocalize a high-pitched E, then airway swelling is unlikely. Next, assess the patient's breath sounds. If you hear any wheezing or upper airway sounds, this should make you concerned for airway involvement. Clear lung sounds are a very reassuring finding. After you've assessed the patient's airway and lungs, do a good skin exam looking for urticaria. Follow this by the rest of your physical exam, head to toe, just like for every other patient. Now let's talk about the treatments for allergic reaction and aphylaxis. We frequently see patients who have mild allergic reactions who require medications to feel better, but who don't have life-threatening aphylaxis. Let's talk about these patients first, then the critically ill patient with anaphylaxis. For mild allergic reactions, you could treat the patient with an antihistamine such as diphenhydramine, aka Benadryl. If the patient has a very mild urticaria, you can even do this as PO, but we often give IV Benadryl to help the patient feel better faster. The dose of Benadryl is 25 to 50 mg IV in an adult, or 1 to 2 mg per kilogram PO or IV in a child. This will help block the histamine reaction 
and should help the patient feel better. The next treatment to consider is H2 blockers. For this, we frequently use ranitidine, aka Zantac, or famotidine, aka Pepsid. Zantac is dosed at 50 mg IV, and Pepsid is dosed at 20 mg IV. Finally, steroids are another medication we can use to help the patient feel better faster. However, they take about 4-6 to six hours to show their effects. If the patient can swallow medications, oral prednisone is equally effective as the IV route. Oral prednisone is dosed at 50 mg PO for an adult, or 1 mg per kilogram PO for a child. For the IV route, it's methylprednisolone, aka solumedrol, at 125 mg IV for an adult, or 1 mg per kilogram IV for a child. For the patient with a mild allergic reaction, you can use these medications to help the patient feel better. However, once a patient has crossed over into the realm of anaphylaxis, these medications aren't really indicated. While you will give these medications as part of the kitchen sink approach to anaphylaxis, you should never delay giving the patient epinephrine to give these other medications. Patients with true anaphylaxis need epi, epi, and more epi, not time wasted on interventions like Benadryl. Now that we have said that, let's talk about the general approach to true anaphylaxis. First, let's talk briefly about the diagnostic criteria for anaphylaxis. I think we all know anaphylaxis when we see it, but there are some nuances. If you use the strict definition, there are three different criteria for the diagnosis of anaphylaxis, and they can be a little complex to interpret. The reason why there are so many criteria is that there are atypical presentations of anaphylaxis where there are no skin findings and no hemodiametic compromise. Here's how to think about this. If you have a patient with a sudden onset of skin findings, such as rash, hives, or itching, with respiratory compromise, low blood pressure, or persistent GI symptoms, then it's probably anaphylaxis. However, keep in mind, if there is an exposure to a known or likely allergen, then hypotension, respiratory compromise, or persistent abdominal pain may be the only signs of anaphylaxis without the occurrence of skin findings. Make sure to remember about persistent abdominal pain as a symptom of anaphylaxis because it's an easily missed finding that's an indication for anaphylaxis treatment. Also remember to check your triage vital signs and not ignore any episodes of hypotension in a patient displaying allergic symptoms. Now let's talk about the treatment of a patient with anaphylaxis. For these patients, two things need to happen rapidly. You need to give the patient epinephrine, and you need to formulate a plan for the airway. Let's talk first about epinephrine. Epi is needed in all patients with anaphylaxis, and you shouldn't hesitate to give it. From what I have read, there is a large practice difference between the U.S. and other parts of the world in regards to using epinephrine in anaphylaxis. In the U.S., we seem to be very skittish about giving epi, but the rest of the world uses a lot more liberally for what most would consider mild to moderate allergic reactions. If you're an international listener, please drop me an email and let me know what your practice is. I would be very interested to hear some opinions about how you approach anaphylaxis. The bottom line is that if you think the patient is having anaphylaxis, give the epi. Now, there are two ways to give epi, intramuscular and intravenous. We used to give epi subcutaneously, but this has gone out of favor. Sub-Q injections are very shallow and don't penetrate into the muscle. When you have a patient who is sick and shocky from anaphylaxis, they stop perfusing the sub-Q layer, therefore they can't absorb sub-Q injections. 
intramuscular or IM injections have a much quicker and more reliable absorption rate than sub-Q and should be the preferred route for epi administration. The dose of IM epi is 0.3 mg in an adult or 0.01 mg per kilogram in a child. Make sure to double check this dose and the child's weight before you give this to avoid any possibility of an overdose. Let's talk for a minute about the different concentrations of epinephrine. For IM epi, we use 1 to 1000 epi because it is more concentrated so it can be absorbed into the muscle quickly. For cardiac arrests, we use 1 to 10,000 epinephrine and they are usually in ampules that total 1 milligram. You never, let me repeat, never give full dose 1 milligram, 1 to 10,000 epi to a patient with a pulse. Just don't do it. The epi that we give with lidocaine for local anesthesia is 1 to 100,000, which is very dilute, so it won't cause tissue necrosis. Some hospitals have done away with all of this confusion by not stocking 1 to 1,000 epi at all, and only stocking EpiPens, which have a pre-measured dose of 0.3 milligrams in adults and 0.15 milligrams for the pediatric version. I think this is a good idea to avoid medication errors, but I haven't seen, seen it adopted widely. We'll talk more about the differences in concentration in a second. The bottom line is that to avoid any confusion, when you dose the epi, don't make it complicated by mentioning the concentration of epi. Just tell the person the total dose that you want. This takes the concentration part out of the equation and tells the person drawing it up exactly how many milligrams you want to give. So let's say that you have a patient who is sick from anaphylaxis. You need to hit them immediately with IM epi to counteract the massive vasodilation and fluid leak that is caused by anaphylaxis. So give the patient 0.3 milligrams IM up to three total doses. Now let's say that you've given two or three doses of epi IM and the patient isn't turning around. Now it's time for IV epi. We always start with the IM route because the IV route has been associated with more complications, so we would like to avoid it if at all possible. There are two different ways to do IV epi. An audio podcast is probably not the best way to teach these concepts, but if you listen carefully and understand what we are shooting for, and then go through it a bunch of times in your head, it will stick. The first method of giving IV epi is by small push doses. Scott Weingart from the Imprint Podcast popularized this method, for any sick patient requiring small titrated doses of pressors. I'll link to his podcast in the show notes, but I'll go over how to make push dose epinephrine here. All you will need is a syringe with 10 cc's of normal saline and an amp of crash card epi. So this epinephrine is the 1 to 10,000 epi concentration found on every crash cart in a bigger ampule. What you will do is remove 1 cc of normal saline from your syringe so you have 9 cc's of normal saline left. Then you take the crash card epi and put 1 cc of that in the syringe with the normal saline. Now you have 9 cc's of normal saline and 1 cc of crash card epi. You'll want to put a cap on this and invert it several times to mix it thoroughly. Before you inject this into the patient, make sure to label the syringe with a sticker so you don't confuse it with any other syringes because that could be a deadly mistake. Once you have this mixed up, you'll want to give 1 to 2 cc's of the mixture every 2 to 5 minutes as needed. This will give you 10 to 20 micrograms of epinephrine per push. To understand its concept a little better, 
Let's talk about the dilution of epinephrine to really drive this home. One amp of crash cart 1 to 10,000 epi has 10 cc's and contains 1 milligram of epi. 1 milligram equals 1,000 micrograms. Since you only take 1 cc out of the amp, or 1 tenth of the amp, that leaves you with 100 micrograms of epi. Now you dilute this tenfold by adding it to 9 cc's of normal saline, so your 100 micrograms of epi gets diluted down to 10 micrograms per cc. If you couldn't follow that, let me put it another way. Crash card epi is 1 to 10,000 concentration. So by diluting this tenfold, we now have a concentration of 1 to 100,000 in a small syringe. We take this extra step because if we gave undiluted crash card epi through a vein that the, and the patient was not in cardiac arrest, we could sclerose the vein and cause damage to the surrounding tissue. However, by diluting the epi down, we now have the same concentration of epi that we use for local anesthesia, so we don't get worried about it damaging the veins or surrounding tissue. So let's review this real quick to drive this home. Take 1 cc of crash card epi and add it to 9 cc's of normal saline. Push 1 to 2 cc's every 2 to 5 minutes as needed for blood pressure support or until the patient feels better. There is another way to give epi IV and it's through a drip. If your ED has pre-made bags of epinephrine, then you should use them. But I have found that this drip is rarely available on an emergent basis in the ED. It's usually something that a pharmacy has to mix up. In the case of anaphylaxis, we don't have time to wait, so let's talk about how to mix this up on your own. It's pretty simple, but as always, it takes some practice to get right. All you will need for this is an amp of crash card epi, which is 1 milligram of epi, a liter bag of normal saline, and an IV pump. Take the amp of crash card epi and inject the entire volume into a liter bag of saline. Mix it around a few times and hang it on an IV pole after you have labeled the bag. Connect this to an IV pump and set it at 60 cc's an hour and increase it by multiples of 60 rapidly until the BP improves and the patient gets better. Now let's review the math on this to understand this better. So this started by taking 1 milligram of epi, which is 1,000 micrograms. This was put into 1,000 cc's of normal saline. This now gives you a mixture of 1 microgram of epinephrine per cc. This is even more dilute than the 10 micrograms per cc of the push-dose epi. So you have 1 microgram per cc, and you want to start this at 1 cc per minute. Most IV pumps I have seen don't have a setting for cc's per minute, so you have to multiply this 1 cc per minute by 60 minutes in an hour to get 60 cc's per hour. This will give you 1 microgram per minute. That is a relatively small dose of epi. Most experts recommend anywhere from 2 to 20 micrograms per minute, although there is theoretically no maximum dose. You just won't get any more presser effect much higher than 20 micrograms per minute. So all you do is start at 60 cc's per hour and go up by multiples of 60 each time you want to increase the dose of epinephrine. In theory, you could also just start at 600 cc's per hour or 10 micrograms per minute and titrate up or down if you're really worried about the patient. So let's review how to do that real quick. Take 1 amp or 1 milligram of crash card epi and put it in 1 liter of normal saline. This gives you 1 microgram per cc. Run this mixture at 60 cc's per hour and go up by multiples of 60 each time you want to increase the dose. Now to all you smart people out there, I'm sure that you are thinking that adding 10 cc's of epi increases the volume of the bag enough that you don't actually get 1 microgram per cc. It's slightly less than that. 
If you thought that, then you're right. You actually get 0.99009 micrograms per cc of epinephrine. So congratulations on being super anal retentive on that one. If it makes you feel any better, you can take out 10 cc's from the bag before you inject the amp of epi, but that will waste time that you really don't have. One quick situation to talk about with anaphylaxis and the use of epinephrine are those patients who are taking beta blockers. Beta blockers will prevent epinephrine from fully treating patients with anaphylaxis. In order to counteract this, give the patients IV glucagon. This will have direct effects to increase the heart rate and blood pressure that are not blocked by the beta blocker pathway. The dose for IV glucagon is 1 to 5 milligrams given over 5 minutes. Glucagon is nicknamed pugagon because it frequently causes vomiting. You can counteract this by giving it slowly and chasing with ondansetron, aka Zofran. Some other medications to consider are inhaled beta agonists, IV fluids, and vasopressors. If the patient is significantly wheezing, they'll probably benefit from albuterol. Anaphylaxis causes significant capillary leak and hypotension that will benefit from boluses of IV fluids. Don't hesitate to squeeze in 1-2 to two liters of normal saline as a bolus to help support the patient's blood pressure. Finally, if epinephrine is not working to maintain the patient's blood pressure, then you can switch to dopamine or norepinephrine as an alternative. Now that we've talked about the treatment of anaphylaxis, let's talk about how to properly disposition these patients. First, let's talk about those mild allergic reactions. If the patient has a mild skin rash and maybe a little tickle in the back of their throat and didn't require epinephrine, they can be discharged on a 5-day course of steroids, Benadryl, H2 blockers, and follow up with their primary care physician. I prefer sending these patients home on prednisone, 50 mg per day for 5 days, Benadryl, 25 mg 3 times per day as needed for itching, and Zantac, 150 mg twice a day. If you give the patient epinephrine in the emergency department, they should be observed for at least 4-6 to six hours in the ED. The reason we do this is for the possibility of a rebound reaction. The theory is that the patient gets better, but then has another histamine surge 4-6 to six hours later that will cause them problems. This is mostly a theoretical concern that hasn't been well proven in the literature, but in general, it's not a bad idea to observe these patients for a period of time once they've been given epinephrine. For any patient with true anaphylactic reaction, they must be discharged from the ED with a prescription for an EpiPen. They need to be instructed to use the EpiPen if they have any return of their symptoms. The patient needs to be shown how the EpiPen works and how to inject themselves. Believe it or not, even though the EpiPen makes it automatic, this is harder to do than it sounds. There is lots of literature that shows that even providers have difficulty administering EpiPens correctly. If healthcare providers have a tough time remembering how to use an EpiPen, imagine your scared patient. It's important to take the time to explain that they need to give themselves the epi and how to do it. Stress to the patient they should not wait for an ambulance to show up because by the time they do, it may be too late and they could go into cardiac arrest from hypoxia. Make sure to prescribe the patient at least two EpiPens. One is for home and one is for them to carry at all times. If possible, I like to prescribe the patient three EpiPens so they can put one in their car as well. For a child, that third EpiPen needs to be kept at school. If you live in a hot climate, having EpiPen in your car is not the best option since it may degrade over time, but it's better than nothing. Before we wrap this up, let's do a quick review. Suspect anaphylaxis in a patient with any suspected allergen exposure. 
common complaints include itching, rash, and trouble breathing. It's important to make a quick assessment of the patient from the foot of the bed to see how sick they are. Get a good history regarding any previous reactions and what the patient was doing before the symptoms started. Ask about any trouble breathing and make sure that their airway is clear and there is no swelling. Have the patient vocalize a high-pitched E. If they can do that, then significant upper airway swelling is unlikely. Mild allergic reactions are treated with Benadryl, H2 blockers, and steroids. Benadryl is dosed at 25 to 50 mg IV for an adult and 1 mg per kilogram for a child. Zantac and Pepsid are H2 blockers that can be given IV. Zantac is dosed at 50 mg IV and Pepsid at 20 mg IV. Prednisone is an oral steroid that is dosed at 50 mg for an adult or 1 mg per kilogram for a child. If the patient can't swallow medications, give solumedrol at 125 mg IV for an adult and 1 mg per kilogram for a child. If the patient's reaction is severe and they have any trouble breathing, rapidly give the patient IM epinephrine to start. The dose is 0.3 mg IM for an adult and 0.01 mg per kilogram for a child. Sub-Q injections are not used anymore because in anaphylaxis, the sub-Q layer is not well perfused. Push-dose epi is 1 cc of crash card epi mixed with 9 cc's of normal saline. You'll give this 1 to 2 cc's at a time every 2 to 5 minutes as needed until the patient improves. You can also make an epi drip by putting 1 milligram of crash card epi into 1 liter of normal saline. This gives you 1 microgram of epi per cc. Run this drip at 2 to 20 micrograms per minute. If you have to factor in the hourly rate, start at 60 cc's per hour and rapidly titrate upwards by multiples of 60. That's all I have for this episode. Stay tuned for the follow-up episode on airway management and anaphylaxis and upper airway obstruction. I'll be posting it within a week. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for the InBasic Podcast, signing off.